0: You're listening to Fueling the Future of Transport, hosted by Tammy Klein, the founder and CEO of Transport Energy Strategies. We'll talk all about the fuels and energy it takes to keep the world moving forward.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Tammy Klein. Welcome to the show. I am so pleased um, to have with me today uh, Britta Gross. Let me tell you a little bit about Britta. Britta is a former managing director for the Rocky Mountain Institute's RMI's Carbon-Free Mobility Global Program. This is a practice that is focused on market-driven strategies technologies and policies required to accelerate towards carbon-free mobility solutions globally. So Britta, um, and how I first came to know Britta, is she's formerly di- the Director of Advanced Vehicle Commercialization at General Motors. She was responsible for the energy strategies, partnerships, and policies required to enable the wide-scale commercialization of battery, electric, and hydrogen fuel cell vehicle uh, vehicles. Uh, Britta is also a Commissioner for the Orlando U Utility Commission uh, in Orlando, uh, Florida's um, Electric and Water Utility. Thank you so much for joining the program uh, today, Britta. It is, um, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you, Tammy. It's a pleasure to be here. And boy, those were a lot of words you had to say <laughs> <laughs> it was. Oh, it was it was but um it is um your background is just is so uh, amazing and it's it's nice to be in this um this iteration uh, uh with you. So I want to get right into the questions. Um the first one is you've done you're you're one of the people that I most Sort of associate out there with um, really carbon free <laughs> mobility and electrification um, in in this country and globally um, on the forefront on um, on the cutting edge. So the first question that I want to ask is how do you see the electric vehicle market evolving um, over the next ten years, in particularly in particular, especially here in in the U.S. and do you think California will be able to meet um, its ZEV targets um, under its Advanced Clean Cars Program? So let's just get right into the heart of it.
0: (laughs) So while that was a loaded question, let me try to break it apart in its bits. Let me first talk about the motivation Mm -hmm. um, for why um, countries, the U.S., why we're all looking at electrifying transportation. The first one uh, the first motivation is global com- competition and global competitiveness. Uh, the automotive sector is responsible for about three or three, three and a half percent of, of the U.S. GDP. It's a very, very important sector, not just for GDP, but also the skilled labor force, the technology it creates and so on. China would love to own the you know leapfrog over the combustion engine vehicle into electric vehicles. So they're going electric. Europe's going electric. So global competition is on the minds of really every bipartisan bill, every automaker, every truck maker, et cetera. The second motivation is carbon. Um, Reducing carbon from the number one sector in the US of uh, carbon emissions, and that's transportation. So for those two reasons, that's the motivator. Um, What I see happening in the next 10 years um, is that we're going to see a lot more mainstream products. Uh, you uh, may remember the launch recently of the uh, Ford F-150. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Vehicle. That's a big deal, right? Yeah. We're not we're not talking about one offs. This is a vehicle that every American understands yeah. how it's how functional it is, how it has so many different purposes from rural to, you know, labor force, you know, moving, you know, uh, plumbing and electrical. Yeah equipment around to repair things. So I think that the the moving the more into the mainstream is really what's going to be important. Um, GM also announced their Silverado that's coming. VW is coming with a lot of Uh, products. And I think you're also going to start to see not just one vehicle model from one manufacturer, but now you're going to see portfolios of electric vehicles being offered. And that's what Americans are waiting for. Right. More variety, more functionality, more options on these vehicles. There are folks that live in mountains. They're going to need off road and uh, four wheel drive vehicles. And those Mm -hmm. are they're, they're in the market today, electric vehicles, but not in in a large volume, not in a large um, uh, variety, and I'm talking here about not just light duty vehicle market. Um, clearly, that's you know that's the big culprit for carbon emissions. Uh, by the way, yeah. about almost ninety, per, uh, almost sixty percent of the transportation emissions are coming from the light duty vehicle sector, the cars and trucks that you and I drive. Yeah. So the light duty vehicle sector is really important, but medium duty and heavy duty are right behind, uh, right behind these things with products that are available today in the market. And I would just maybe finally say. The OEM investments, if, if anyone's paying attention to the last year and a half, two years of these big, you know, billion, billion dollar investments. I mean, GM, I don't know, $30 billion, Ford, $35 billion, Volkswagen, $50 billion. Even in singular states, we're looking at $7 billion, $8 billion by individual automakers. I think there's no turning back now. And I think that's it, this momentum that you're seeing right now.
1: Yeah, I think it's so interesting that you, that the first thing that you actually mentioned was not the, the carbon, um, you know, the the carbon cutting that electric vehicles um represent. Um, but it's the it's the um competitive, uh competitiveness. And I've I've seen that for a long time, that, you know, this is as much, and and I see it also for hydrogen um as well, actually, that this is a, a this is sort of the the race to dominate. And um now you see the the US and Europe sort of sort of following, following China manufacturing these, you know you know it's battery manufacturing and it's the vehicle manufacturing and it's the and it's the it's the charging and it's the it's the race to dominate as much as it is about you know reducing um reducing greenhouse gas emissions and and improving air quality
0: yeah exactly and right. and I'm glad you really picked up on that too there are so many wins in here and that's why you're starting to see real bipartisan bills promoting um you know the Uh, extraction of minerals and the processing of raw materials that are going to be needed in batteries and so on. Um, You're you're seeing investments in charging infrastructure. This is important to everyone because it's about global competition. It's about high-tech industries. It's about higher paying jobs and, and again what it all represents to the economy. So um and 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 the wins that go along with it are just zero tailpipe emissions. You mentioned the local air quality. And and really you start to get into issues like equity. When we start mm-hmm. talking about just eliminating these tailpipe emissions, this is really an equity issue because folks that live in low-income communities are often yeah. right there next to highways, right there next to warehouses, where the trucks are coming in and out day after day after day. And those are mm-hmm. health issues. So win, win, win all over this really a
1: no brainer to electrify transportation. So, what do you think about whether whether California and and you know and other states are are starting to put into place? ZEV goals, um, zev targets um, you know, I think it's very personally myself as, as as an analyst, I think it's very likely that states will will follow um, California's lead into advanced clean cars too and, and that we may see more states going the way of setting more hard targeted um, you know zev goals that need to be reached. So m- my question to you is do you, do you see states, um, you know, especially California, do you see them um, you know, meeting their goals? Is there gonna be enough electrification? Is there gonna be enough vehicles out there? Is the is the tide, you know, in terms of consumers sort of um beginning to choose these vehicles, is that gonna happen in in, a, in enough of a way for, for states to be able to 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 meet them? Or is the point to just you know, put the goal out there and to get, you know, the industry consumers charging, like to just kind of get folks kind of moving forward.
0: Yeah. I, if you had asked me that question four years ago, I would have said, boy, I'm not seeing the alignment in the Mm -hmm. sectors that have to be aligned. I mean, yeah, you saw some early movers like California saying, Hey, this is important to us. Um, You know, we have these large ambitions like the advanced clean cars, Um, And proposed ruling uh, that's going to be coming out for uh, uh, criteria pollutants and greenhouse gas emissions after the year 2026. They were making some moves, um, states like Washington, Oregon, you know, Colorado and others um, following but, you know, if you don't have industry lined up right next to you, it's really hard to see the, the path forward. And, and if you don't actually have the federal government lined up, too, it's really difficult for automakers and truck makers to figure out how to deploy vehicles in a patchwork system like we have yeah. where the rules aren't the same in every state. But I think over the last two years, in my mind and, and having been in this industry now for you know 20 years, more than 20 years I think everything's changed. I think you are now seeing major, major not only commitments but investments. I, I mentioned those earlier too. I mean, when and I guess the the one big thing that really made a difference. Of course, you've got Tesla out there dominating the electric vehicle market today. Yeah, but what you really want to see are the, are the is the rest of the market, the big players that actually produce 17 million uh, cars yeah. and, and and light duty trucks a year. And when General Motors came out about, I don't know, what was it, two years ago at this point, yeah. And said, hey, we, um, our goal is to sell 100% electric vehicles by the year 2035. And now you start to see, well, wait a second. That's exactly what California is saying in this advanced clean car proposed rule, that that's what their ambition is too for 2035. So when you start to see big automakers, um, states, and even the federal government um, doubling down on these targets and like, where are we trying to go? It drives confidence into the market and the investors start to see that. And that gets exciting. So you're seeing again, the, 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 the billions of dollars investment, that I don't think you can turn back from once you start yeah. to put that money down 7 billion, 8 billion, 10, 30, $50 billion. There's no turning back from that. Plants are being converted. Plants are being built to build batteries, to build Uh, the the battery cells for the batteries and for the vehicles that are going to be electric. So I think that that's where we are. So can we make the targets? Now, that's that's another question. Now, where are the consumers? And I think there we have to fight really hard on things like charging infrastructure. Mm -hmm. It has to be better. Um, The the NEVI program, this National EV Infrastructure Program that the federal government is now um, um, working towards with with, with Congress in the um, new bipartisan infrastructure plan, This is critical and we are going to have to solve charging infrastructure, home, work and public charging because you've got to inspire that confidence. And then the products have to come to the market. So I think finally there is a path Mm -hmm. and I think there's the ambition and we have to tweak and solve a few very, very critical problems right now and challenges. But
1: boy, have I never felt more confident than where we are right now so let's talk about um the charging uh, piece of that because I think that that that's what's really interesting to me is um where you know yes you know the infrastructure bill um you know bipartisan seven and a half billion dollars um just for EV infrastructure and this is where you're not you know you're not seeing you know the you know if we if we talk about things like carbon carbon tax, national low carbon fuel standard ZEV mandate, like you're not going anywhere with Republicans. Like it's just not even <laughs> going to happen. It's not going to happen at the federal level um, and it's not going to happen, you know, within the states. However, when we start talking about putting the the infrastructure into place and sort of other pieces, but I think infrastructure is really the key. You know, that's where I really see a lot of activity, even in a state like Florida, you know, our our state with a with a governor who's, you know, he's pretty Republican, um, you know, you know, and there are all these investments that are happening here in in Florida, you know, charging corridors and things like that, which, you know, uh, the governor fully fully supports so you know it, that's what i think is is really interesting is um you need the infrastructure you may not even need um a zev mandate but you need the infrastructure and you need the the, the support for that and you need the the um you know the the financing for that and i think that's the real you know if we want to talk anything in terms of carbon policy for transport energy i think that right now is like the total bright spot. So wondering if you seeing if you're seeing it the same and also how you how do you see charging evolving like over these these next 10 years now that these investments are starting to come?
0: Yeah, let's okay, so maybe just I'll provide a little bit of perspective around this this national EV infrastructure program that was again bipartisan yeah. and approved in the in the IIJA bill. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what's important is again I, I think the reason it's bipartisan is back to the point about this is important for the market. This yeah. is important for global competition. So I think that I'm speaking to both conservatives and I'm speaking both to progressives. Absolutely. When I say people are understanding this. Those folks are understanding What's at stake here if we don't get this right? Mm-hmm. Um, I do think some states are much further ahead. I think Florida's got to do some catch up now. I think there's spots <laughs> yeah. right like my utility, OUC, um, where I sit on the board because they, they they were actually actively putting in charging around town 150 chargers way back in 2010 and 2011. So right. I mean, there are some pers- uh, very progressive um, um, sweet spots, but there's no question. Uh, charging infrastructure still does not feel ubiquitous, and it's definitely not reliable. And these are two things that the National EV Infrastructure Program, we call that NEVI for short, um, is attempting to address. And it's it's a, it's a down payment. It is a $7.5 billion program that may sound like a lot of money, but um, all the analyses out there, including the, the work that I performed at RMI and Atlas Policy, um, have shown that we're probably going to need closer to $40 billion. And I don't think, I'm I'm here to say, again, you can't do this all on the back of government, but you have to use government to drive confidence into the market because yeah. the investors will play when there's confidence when the risk is taken out of the market, and that's where these signals have to align, and that's what we're starting to see right now, and I think that's what's really important. So when I think about like the highway infrastructure system, the highway charging infrastructure system, which is what the NEVI program is all about, um. It's a lot like just the interstate roadway system that we built um, in the back in the 50s, right? I don't use that interstate system very much. I mean, I'm here in Orlando and sometimes I'll go up to Tallahassee and sometimes I'll drive down to, to to Miami. I don't use it very much. But boy, am I confident that if I wanted to take an interstate and drive from Orlando to Los Angeles or Chicago or Atlanta, I can do it. That's what charging infrastructure, high-speed charging infrastructure has to be. It's not going to be used all the time, but you want that backbone in place. You want to know that you can go anywhere you you need to go. And that's Mm -hmm. what NEVI is doing. This national EV infrastructure plan is about uh, every 50 miles putting four big chargers, fast, high-speed chargers that are very visible with upgraded reliability and maintenance and uptime requirements so that it drives confidence into the market, so that the investors, the private market can show up and say, there's no question, my money's not at risk anymore. This is going somewhere. I see the 2030 targets. I see the 2035 targets. This is gonna now work. I'm ready to put my money into this market. So that's what this program is doing. It's a down payment on private investment, really critical. But in the end, this really does come down to home charging, doesn't it, right? Mm, So, I mean, home charging today, all the evidence, all the data suggests that, you know, anywhere from, um, 80 to 95 percent of all charging is done at home. Now, um, that's because a lot of early EV buyers, of course, live in single-family homes where it's easier for you to call an electrician and have them wire up your garage or just do the outlet. I plug. I've been plugging driving an EV for ten years and I plug into a regular you know 120 volt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that works too. But we have to start moving these home solutions into apartments and condominiums and folks. Again, we're talking about equity as well. Everyone should have access. And a lot of Uber and Lyft and taxi drivers live in areas where they're renting an apartment or living in a condominium. And so we have to think about home charging as sort of the the workhorse of of EV charging, but you got to have those highways done too. And then I don't want to ever overlook destination charging because when I'm not at home and I'm going to a park, a beach, A national park, a state park, um, museums and sporting arenas, those are places where I'm out of my comfort zone because I've driven a long way to get there. I don't do it very often and I need charging there too. So between home destination and highway charging, we're getting there, but there's no question it has to precede the vehicles. And it's something that the automakers and truck makers are concerned about because they don't control the charging infrastructure, not at the scale we need to have happen.
1: So it sounds like what you're saying is, over the next ten years, you see more, you know, charging um, amongst. And around, um, you know, national highway corridors, which is something that's that's, as you say, is underway now. Home charging will will continue, but will move more into, um, you know, areas where folks are, um, you know, in, in condos and apartments. Um, they're not in single single family homes, um, and there will be more destination, you know, sort of thoughtfully placed um, destination, uh, charging, um, for, you know, for, you know, to, to, to provide that confidence. So you see that really c- those three areas really, you know, shifting and changing and growing over these next 10 years.
0: They have to, and they have to accelerate fast. And let me just give you one statistic. If you go look at MREL's AFDC, all will you uh, data center, the alternative fuel data center, where they track how many stations, charging stations, hydrogen fuel stations, et cetera, are around the U.S. If you go look at their last report um, or more recent, most recent report, we're installing about 600 DC fast chargers every quarter. Yeah, by numbers to get to the kind of numbers that are climate aligned in 2030, kind of numbers that GM and and, and California are working towards. Those numbers suggest we should be installing today 10 thousand DC fast chargers every quarter from 600 to 10,000. So we are nowhere near the pace of charging infrastructure needed to meet the automakers and the truck makers where they are planning to be in 2030. And that's, that's what we have to address right now is getting
1: to that point. So how do we, how do we do that? What additional policies, if any, um, you know, do you think in your view need to happen to sort of get us there? Because I saw a similar statistic. I think it's the same one. It's basically, we need to do 300 DC fast charging stations a day. And it's like, oh my God, you know, that's a, that's a lot, you know? Um, But that's kind of like where we, where we need to go. So what, what kind of policy do you think needs to happen to sort of help us more get there? Money's one thing, but is there, are there other things? Yeah, I
0: think, I think that there are some underlying challenges that are preventing us from get, moving from 600 chargers a quarter to the 10,000 chargers being installed a quarter. And I'm just talking about DC fast charging. It's, those are a little yeah. bit smaller numbers, so we can talk about them with some kind of sense of understanding of what we're talking about. But there are some challenges: um, permitting, the time it takes to just permit. And, oh my gosh! And again, yes. Let me back off a little bit here. It is really complicated here in the U.S. Right? We have a, a very open market and so on. It's a complex landscape. We're not like China where we have two major utilities and the government just tells the two utilities, here's what you have to do. And I I want this done next year. We have 3,200 electric utilities across the U.S. Some are these large investor owned utilities and some are the small co-op and community owned um, utilities. And so um, add to that the complexity of the way we permit, right? We have 23,000 Authorities having jurisdiction. These are yeah. where you go get your permits for your new bathroom or whatever you're doing, and and you have 50 states that have different building codes and and different guidance they're sending down to the permitting authorities. And you can't permit unless you know what the plan is, and you can't plan unless you know what the zoning rules are. We have this complex web, and so there's no question we have to work harder than I would just suggest anywhere else to solve these system issues and. What's really interesting when you talk about permitting, right? It takes eight, nine nine months on average across the United States. Some are faster, some are much slower. Um, It also takes like eight, nine months on average to just get grid power to a site because we're not sort of thinking big scale. We're not thinking like, what do I have to build today to get ready for 2030? If this is going electric, and I think it is going electric,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: what should I be doing today to the grid and to bring, to be bringing power to different sites around town where I know there are big warehouses with big delivery vehicles. What should I be doing to address these kinds of fundamental systemic issues that are just driving time delays into the market, which is cost, which is risk for investors, which is again, the the enemy of all of us is this risk in the market. Um, These are the kinds of things we have to do. And I was really heartened because day before, I I think it was just days ago, uh, there was the White House just issued, I think what they're calling a permitting action plan. And I was just stunned again at the awareness that's coming right now from a very, very astute Department of Energy and Department of Transportation that just I've just not seen this before. They're really paying attention to not just shovel ready projects to put charges in the ground, but what's preventing us from doing it, doing more of this and getting rid of the, the barriers to private investment coming into the market. And so they've actually stepped back and said, we get it. Permitting is a problem. So these are some of the underlying things that have to be addressed. I think building codes, I'll just I'll, I'll say this forever. It's the no-brainer way to make sure that every apartment, every condo, every home, if you're building new or if you're remodeling, it just should be part of the permit requirement. You've got wires that lead somewhere where a car is going to be parked because in 2030, you know, 50% of all sales are going to be electric. And in 2035, the ambition is 100 percent of all vehicle sales are electric. You need a place to plug in these vehicles. It could be a simple level one 120 volt outlet. It could be level two um, in public, probably DC fast charging. We just got to get the building codes right. Again, a, a no brainer for 50 states just to drop down those those um, the guidance so that the local jurisdictions understand why we're pruning in this way and what the building code requirements are.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I think what you're saying is so important. This is an area that I, I've worked on um, myself. You know, with the with the Fuels Institute. You know, sort of looking at various assorted barriers and permitting just comes up time and time and time and time and time again. And it was astonishing for me when I did that research project looking at you know the 50 states and then also that the the select um, metropolitan statistical areas. We looked at 100 cities and counties, and it was. You know, I was shocked at how many you know, how much, you know, there wasn't a lot in a a lot of these very large areas, you know, at all addressing uh, this issue. Um, But also, you know, it was either super, super Byzantine, super, super nothing. Um, And then there were some that really um, had done quite a lot, you know, like, um, like Atlanta, you know, of course, California with, uh, with both their green building code and um, expedited permitting. I mean, it was really shocking. And this was in, 2020. So I I think, I think localities or authorities having jurisdiction are beginning to recognize that too. But yeah, I mean, just the, 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 the barriers to, to permitting and then also, you know, to get the the infrastructure in place from the utility and what happens needs to happen on the the utility side to make that happen and that you know that you might need to get pro- approvals from the PSC and it's also caused me to wonder it's like oh is the PSC process you know the 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 way in which they do um um, you know, they consider filings and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. Is that even really conducive to the speed yeah. at which we yeah. need to get charging it? Yeah. You know, uh, sort of um, approved so that the utilities can move on their side because they want to move, but they're kind of in a process that's not really adapted to kind of what we need. So I'm wondering if you see that too, oh. especially as a yeah. as a utility board member. Yeah, I, let me let me say. I love that you picked up on this point because we are
0: still treating electric vehicles as if these are these one-offs that rich people are you know buying the EVs and the charger is a one-off over here in this public space. We are not yet stepping back. And I'm talking about public service commissions. I'm talking about governors. I'm talking about, you know, state planning authorities and so on. We are not yet masterminding. What, what do we have to do? Cause we're going, I mean, does anyone argue with the signs I've laid out where the automotive industry is going, where the trucking industry is going, where the big fleets are going, look at the commitments by Amazon, UPS, FedEx, etc. cetera. They are going electric too. It's cheaper to run on electricity. They buy that. Um, they understand what that means to operating costs, the most significant part of their, of their, you know, uh, their, of the economics of running a fleet, operating a fleet. And so, we are still treating it as one-offs instead of viewing this as, okay, if all signposts suggest we are getting to, you know, we are getting to this point where 50 to 70 million electric vehicles will be on the roads in 2030, and, and, and 100% of EV sales, I mean, as, as far as everyone's ambition is in 2035 will be electric. How would we actually, what do we need to do today to make sure the grid is ready? And that's the question every utility, PSC, PUC, et cetera, should be asking because it is no longer about one offs it's about uber and lyft having announced that they also have full intentions to go um 100% electric by 2030 again in no short in no in no small reason because california has mandated the the clean mile standard which requires right. 90% of their miles to be electric in the state of california but what starts in california ends up having there, there's a reason for economically why these things happen so i think that um you know even even uber and lyft With electric vehicles, the riders, 50% of all rides begin and end in low-income areas. They don't have cars, generally speaking, in low-income areas. So there's a lot of ridership in low-income areas. And there are drivers of a lot of taxis and and, uh, Uber, Lyft drivers that live in communities. And they don't have access today to almost any charging infrastructure. And that has to be solved.
1: So last question. Uh, or next to last question. How do you see electrification evolving in the heavy duty space um, over the next 10, 15 years? We talked about the light duty space. We talked about charging infrastructure. Can you say a few words about how you see heavy duty, um, and medium and heavy duty evolving over these next 10 years? Sure.
0: Um, look, we we cannot look Whereas in the light-duty vehicle sector, you can almost think of it like this homogeneous—they operate in the same way. We're all commuters, and we're all driving short distances. You know, 80% of Americans travel less than 40 miles a day. And you can sort of apply that to the light-duty vehicle sector. When you talk about medium-duty and heavy-duty vehicles, you don't want to continue to think about this as sort of a homogeneous group where everything is the same. You need to segregate and segment out that that sector— uh, because there are solutions that are ready to go today. So NACFI, the North American Council for Freight Efficiency, uh, which is a sister organization to RMI, they just released a report days ago that suggested that um, half of regional class eight trucks, these are heavy duty class, uh, class class eight trucks, could be electrified today. And they based that on the run on less electric demonstration that took place here over the last year. And so when you look at, so, and these are, so what, what makes a, a vehicle electrify, electrifiable? Well, short enough distance return to depot at night, those vehicles can do it even with heavy beverages on board because the, the distances are shorter mm-hmm. or with, you know, large, uh, large, large volume loads, um, that are lighter can go even further distances, but 50% is the estimate of NACVI. Of the trucks that now can be electrified with products that are available today, that you can go order, and so I think that's how we want to view this. I think that as we continue to segment out the the medium duty and heavy duty vehicle sectors, with what's not going so far, what returns to depot, what um, you know wh- where you know where do they just you know twenty four hour cycles back and forth, back and forth from a porch over to a warehouse, etc. Those are opportunities to electrify with batteries, and I, I think you don't want to overlook the opportunity of hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. Another zero emission pathway. Um, And so, you know, you could see easily um, applying hydrogen to, to maybe cross country long haulers i mean i was talking to a a moving company here a few months ago a guy that just travels the country taking goods from denver to orlando for example in my case and when i asked about like hey what do you think about battery vehicles and what does your route look like and he just said i never know i just pick up the phone and someone says hey now i need you in spokane washington or now i need you over in new york city and they don't know so this uncertainty this Long mileage. I think I see hydrogen playing a bigger, bigger role. Maybe also for large transit buses, those Mm -hmm. longer distance routes. And so I think there's a real economic solution there. And all the big fleets are looking at this too. All of the big fleets are are looking at demonstration programs with their hydrogen vehicles to understand what part of the problem can hydrogen
1: vehicles solve. So, super last question, and I agree with you on on hydrogen, especially for the for the heavy duty space. Super last question. So. What excites you most about this space?
0: Oh, wow. That's an open-ended <laughs> question. So um, I'm going to say it, it really is the alignment. Finally, after, you know, 20 years in this part of the business where there was just, it's just, you know, when the, when the federal administration got going, then it was industry was sort of behind when industry gets going you know, some of the state regulations are a mishmash. Finally, we're starting to see real alignment because it's for all the win-win-win reasons that we talked about earlier, right? It's mm-hmm. carbon reduction, it's tailgate, uh, tailpipe emissions, it's it's global competitiveness and the economy and better jobs and better paying jobs here in the United States. And so what excites me is that we have this, we have a white paper exercise right now going on in the utility space because they are also decarbonizing the grid, right? We're dialing down and transitioning away from coal because we need to have to. We're beginning to dial down and look at natural gas is also um, in the long term, not a good solution. We're increasing the amount of renewables on the grid. And as you work with a clean sheet of paper saying, how do you introduce more wind and solar to the and other renewables to the grid? How do you do that? And it's funny how the eyes are looking over at transportation going, they've got a white piece of paper too. They're going all electric. So how do these two energy grid and transportation sectors work together? Clean sheet of paper. Why don't we work together and try to get this right? And so there are a lot of opportunities to get this right. We're talking about the way maybe vehicles work with the grid to charge at times of day that are beneficial to the grid, not during peak hours, like hot August afternoon, four to 7 PM, but maybe later at night when the wind is blowing in West Texas and maybe Mm -hmm. the the sun is shining in either Florida or in California, there are some real opportunities to work together. And I think that's the, that's the real excitement now is that the forces are finally aligning where we can all be more confident that we all, we see the direction. We know where now we have to get the stakes are in the sand for 2030 and 2035. We now just have to do the hard work to get to get to those points.
1: Yeah. It's all about the win, 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 win. Exactly. At the end exactly. of the day. Said well, said well. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the show, Britta. It was it was such a great pleasure to uh, to talk with you. And thanks to you all for listening. Thank you, Tammy. It was a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank
0: you. You've been listening to Fueling the Future of Transport. This show is hosted and edited by Tammy Klein, produced by Carolyn Schneer and engineered by Alexander Nikolich. To hear more great episodes of this show, learn more and sign up for a free bi-weekly newsletter, visit transportenergystrategies.com.